Well, if you have your Bible with you this morning, you can go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 16. And we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 27 there. And these are the final verses of the book of Romans. Uh, Daniel started us out preaching through the book of Romans uh, about a year and a half ago. And, and here we are. We're, we're at the end. And so uh, I'm the closer or the, the uh, relief preacher this morning. So, but I'm glad that I am. I realize how, how glad I am for this opportunity uh, this morning as I was preparing to preach this week because I realized I really need this message. No, I really do. That's what I realized. I realized, oh, deep down to my core, I realize I'm in desperate need of, of, of what we're going to hear this morning. And so this is the word of God. Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. I'm going to go ahead and read through that. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And before we go on, let's take a moment and pray and ask the Lord to shine through his word. So Father, this morning we pray that through the preaching of your word, through the message of these final verses of the book of Romans, and by the work of your Holy Spirit working in our hearts, we do pray that you would shape us, that you would stir us, transform us for your glory. Would you please grant us understanding of these words so that our desires would be to respond to you in thankful worship of who you are and what you have done for us through Christ Jesus. Please, as, as Paul says, please strengthen us through our, our understanding of this gospel, as only you can do. And we pray this for the sake of Jesus, your son. Amen. So since Daniel started preaching through the book of Romans about a year and a half ago, have you found yourself asking, at least on occasion, or even wondering, what's all this fuss about doctrine? What's all this fuss about theological stuff? I've had a few moments like that. Or, or, or maybe like myself or like many others in this room, I assume I'm not alone. You found yourself saying, Daniel, don't tell me all this doctrine stuff. Don't be telling me what I need to know. No, no, tell me what I need to do. I don't, I don't need to know what this doctrine is, I need to know what I need to do. That's what, you, that's what you need to tell me. What do I need to work on as a Christian? That's what I want. And you can be honest. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything. But really, have you found yourself asking any of these questions? It's hard not to. The challenge for any preacher preaching through the book of Romans is that at times it can feel to the listener like a huge informational dump or a doctrinal dump. 
right? A huge load of, of theology coming right at you. And it takes a lot of brain power, I think you've discovered. It takes a lot of brain power to focus and to take in all of the information mentioned in this book. And that's because there's so much that Paul has for us here. There's so much that he's saying. And you know what? We have only barely, and I'm talking barely, scratched the surface of what Paul is talking about this last year and a half. You see, the book of Romans, it is Paul's longest, most detailed, most systematic, well-reasoned exposition of the, of the gospel, of the message of the gospel. It is, it is called Paul's magnum opus. That's what it is. It really is. But why? Why is this work so important? Why is it so important to have all this knowledge of doctrine and theology that can start to feel so cumbersome? And you know what? Paul shows us the answer in our passage in chapter 16. You see, if you look at this passage, if you, if you, if you have your Bible, I want you to actually look at, at right above chapter 25. And if you have kind of a typical Bible, um, any translation, it'll probably say doxology there. You guys see that? It's the subtitle, doxology. Uh, and what doxology is, it's actually the combination of a Greek word, doxa, and the Latin suffix, logia. Okay? You put those two together, and this way you get doxa in Greek means glory, majesty. And then the suffix, logia, takes the word and makes it refer to something communicated or expressed through the mouth. Or, in some instances, through writing. So essentially, what the word, put those two together, and you have the definition of doxology, and that means words of glory expressed. Words of glory expressed. If you're ever wondering what the, what the word doxology, now you know. And if you've been a Christian for some time, you might be familiar with a song we often sing in church called The Doxology. It's a song expressing glory and majesty and adoration to our God. The, the words go like this. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here and below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And then, and then it ends with a beautiful plagal cadence for my music theory friends in here. <laughs> amen. Right? Saying amen. So let it be. Truly, this is true. To finish out his magnum opus, Paul breaks into doxology. He breaks into praise and adoration. And even in our English versions of the text, you can see the excitement and enthusiasm Paul has. You see, the first thing I did to prepare for preaching this text is I actually, I took it and I translated it from the original Greek into English. Now, I, I don't say that to show off. I know I can, you know, puff myself up a little bit, right? I've taken a few Greek classes myself. But no, no, this is actually significant. I actually even debated even bringing that up because I, that, that was not my purpose is to brag about this. But, he, but really, because the significance of this is what I discovered in translating it is that this is a very difficult 
passage to translate. I actually, when I got to the end, I thought, hmm, we're missing some verbs. This is not a complete sentence. And there's not really proper grammar going on here. So then what I figure is Paul is so excited and so enthusiastic about breaking into doxology that he just gets to the point where he just has to start spitting out words of praise, words of glory. And depending on what translation of the Bible you have, you will see this even in English. The amazing thing about what this is, what's going on here is that we can recognize very quickly, even in our English translation, right, that it doesn't even really matter because we understand that there isn't even a word or proper word structure or proper grammar or complete sentences that even begin to describe the glory and the majesty and fame of our God. Even when it comes down to breaking out into doxology, like Paul does. But what is it that causes Paul to break into such marvelous words? What is it? What has led up to this point? It's doctrine. It's doctrine. This is because Paul has demonstrated that doctrine is the fuel for doxology. That's what's going on. The doctrine that Paul spends the entire book expounding is the reason he breaks into such enthusiastic doxology. That is why doctrine is so incredibly important. It leads to worship, to doxology. Doctrine shouldn't lead to puffed up pride. It shouldn't lead me to start feeling like I got it. I'm better than all y'all because I know something you don't. Because the pure doctrine expressed in this book humbles us. That's what it does. It properly humbles us. So, so if you really understand everything leading to this point, the doctrine laid out in this book does not fuel pride. It fuels doxology. So what doctrine are we referring to? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> well, in, in chapter 16, verses 25 to 27, in this doxology, it's also a summary of the entire book. That's what's going on. He, it just, just in these few verses, he just throws in the summary of what he's been teaching throughout this entire letter. So, so even within this short passage, he, he starts showing us, he gives us clues as to what is fueling his doxology. So this is what I want us to do. I want us to look at these verses together. So take a look at Romans chapter 16, verse 25. It starts out like this. I'll read the first part of this verse. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And I want to pause there for just a moment. So I know it was a long time ago, a year and a half is a long time ago, but 
Do you remember what the theme, or Paul's thesis, if you will, is of this entire book? Well, I'll tell you, because Paul tells us. He states his theme just like any good academic writer would, right? Right at the beginning. He tells us what he's going to be telling us right away. And he says this. If you look back to Romans chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 16 and 17. If you can't flip there soon enough, that's okay. It's going to be on the screen. He says this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So in Romans 16 now, if we just flip back to the end, it is translated in the ESV, which is what we have on the screen. It says to him who is able, him who is able to strengthen you. But another way of translating it, and I actually think a better way of translating it, would be to say to him who has the power. To him who has the power to strengthen you. Because the original word that was used there conveys far more than just simply having the ability. But it's referring to having the power, the full power. I'm a drummer. Okay? You guys may not know that because you usually see me playing guitar. But actually my first love, my first instrument, my focus, most of my, my musical focus has been about crafting the art of drumming. That's, that's been my life. Now... Someone might say of me, Aaron is able to play the drums, right? But it's a whole nother meaning. Meaning, It conveys so much more if someone says, Aaron is a powerful drummer, right? There's a big difference there. Aaron's able to drum, Aaron is a powerful drummer. There's a big difference in, in how those words are conveyed. So take a look at the screen. I'm going to put both, both verses up there because I want you to see this. He says, in verse 16 of chapter 1, he says, I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power for salvation to everyone who believes. And then we're going to skip this. Do you see, do you see 16? Uh, let's put both the, um, do I have that? Do we have that? Both, both verses on the same? Okay, well, all right. So uh, verse, um, verse 16, uh, sorry, chapter 16, verse 25. Now to him who has the power to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is important because what we see going on here is Paul is returning to his original idea. That's what he's doing here. Okay, he started out by saying it is the power to save. And now he's ending by saying it is the power to strengthen you. It is the power to keep you saved. So the gospel, this is the point. The gospel, which means good news, that's what that word means. It is the power not only to save you, but now Paul is saying in his concluding words that it is the power to keep you or to strengthen you or to keep you strong in your faith. It is what will carry you to the end. That's because church, we never graduate from the message of the gospel. You probably hear that a lot from this pulpit. Really. But it's critical that we get that. We never graduate from the gospel. It is the power to save us. Romans chapter 1 through 5. Just to do a quick overview. It is the power to save us. And it is the power to change us. We saw that in Romans chapter 8 through 12. And through Romans chapter 12 through 15 as well. 
And now we see that it is the power to keep us strong in our faith in chapter 16. It is not merely the beginning fundamental message. It's not that. It's not just that. But it is the entire story of your walk with Jesus. And Paul continues to his theme in chapter 1, verse 17, revealing more about what the gospel is. Because in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Not by works but by faith. That is a huge doctrine he's talking about here. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith in what? No, no, no. Not faith in what? But faith in who? That's the right question. Faith in who? Faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says in, in, our, in our chapter here, Chapter 16, verse 25, he says that this is, this is what he's been preaching. He's been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. Why would you put your faith in him? Why put your faith in Jesus? So Paul takes off right away in, in chapter 1, verse 18. And again, because this is what Paul is doing, by the way, in his doxology, he's giving us a flyover of all the doctrine. That's what we have to do. We got to look back and we have to be reminded of what is leading to this point. So chapter 1, verse 18, he tells us why we need to put our faith in Jesus. And he spends a long while explaining our condition before God. And if you remember back to, to some of Daniel's earlier sermons, right, he, he, there, there's, there, it gets to a point where it starts to feel grim, right? In fact, I, if I remember right, I should have wrote this down. If I remember right, I think there's two or three sermons titled The Bad News, or something of that effect. Like, really? Like, more than one sermon based on the bad news? That's because Paul spends lots of his letter explaining to us our misery. And it's this. We're guilty before a holy God. We are sinful. We are disobedient. We are unrighteous. And a guilty, unrighteous person has no way of making themselves right before a perfectly righteous God. Friends, Paul is defining the gospel through doctrine. We are guilty before God. That is the first doctrine he expresses in the book. Setting to the trajectory of the rest of the book of Romans. So the question then, how do we fix it? We're guilty before God? We hear things like God loves us. He wants to be in relationship with us. We hear those things in church. Well, how is that possible if our relationship is so broken? How do we fix it? Well, how do we? Left to our own imaginations, we want to start trying to be and act righteous as God is righteous. And so historically, people have tried to do this by keeping strict adherence and strict obedience to the law of God in order, in order to try to make themselves righteous, right? So I know what I can do. I can take the commands of God that, that he said and, 
After all, he's the one who said, keep these commandments. And if I keep those commandments, then I will be righteous and I will be accepted before God. That's a common way of thinking. That was a common way of thinking in the Old Testament. That was a common way of thinking even after Jesus, during Jesus' reign, on earth, during Jesus physically being here on earth. And it's even something that plagues us now. If I just can keep the commands of God, then I can be righteous before God and he'll accept me. Let's take example of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Command more. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. Now, would everyone in this room who is just knocking it out of the park with obedience to these commands, go ahead and raise your hand. I'm looking for my sons because um, I thought they would raise their hands out of, just to try to antagonize me. That's why I have gray hair, guys. Right here, and I'm balding a little bit right here. Because of your lack of ability, I see one of them. Because your lack of ability to keep these commandments. Kid, I love you guys. Well, the good news of the gospel, the good news that he's laying out here, as I said, the gospel, if you will, is that Paul has just spent a section of, of his letter explaining to us that although the law of God is good, the law of God is good. Okay? He says that in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. He says, the law of God is good. But it is not good news or gospel for you. The law of God is good, but it is not good news for you. Because what the law of God does is reveal to us the fact that we can't keep it. I just read the Ten Commandments, right? Immediately, my, my response right away is to start thinking, how am I doing with this? Oh, nope, 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 nope. Oh, and then we get to murder, and I'm like, ah, I'm good. But then I remember the words of Jesus when he says, uh, yeah, if you, if you have hate in your heart, then you've committed murder. Ah, yeah. Because he takes it and he, and he takes it from the surface and he drives it down deep into our hearts. And he says, no, the problem is not just your actions. That's not the root of the issue. The root of the issue is your heart, your disobedience toward God. And we can't keep these commandments. Because remember, in chapter 5, Paul explains that we inherited the original sin of Adam. He's describing what happened in the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And because of Adam's sin, that's what we inherited. We inherited disobedience to God. But Paul said in the theme of his letter, in light of the law, he says this in the theme of his letter. He says, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
the righteousness of man is not what's been revealed, church. Your righteousness is not what's been revealed. My righteousness is not what has been revealed. But the righteousness of God is what is revealed. We see that it is revealed through Jesus Christ as he fulfilled the perfect demands of the law of God for us on our behalf. Then God gives us that perfect righteousness that Jesus earned and then declares us righteous, not because we are intrinsically righteous, but because we have faith that Jesus is perfectly righteous for us on our behalf. This doctrine is taught in Romans chapter 4. It is what we call the doctrine, we're going to get a little fancy now, it's what we call the doctrine of imputation. Here's what this means. It means this, that Jesus gives us his righteousness. We are unrighteous. He gives us his righteousness. To see this, all we need to do is we just need to remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. He talks about Abraham and David. And I want us to take a look at this because this, this is important. It's gonna, I'm going to read through this. This is the first uh, eight verses of Romans chapter 4. And I think it's necessary to read all eight verses because it's going to explain to us this doctrine. By the way, that becomes fuel for his doxology. So hear the words. What shall we say was gained by Abraham? our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, right? You get a job. You show up to work, you expect some money, right? And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So I'm standing here with my hand out. I didn't work, and God gives me his wages. Didn't earn it. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, he says, blessed are those who lawless, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Do you see the good news in this doctrine? You start to see that? Just think back to the Ten Commandments. You're not keeping those. I'm not keeping those perfectly. No. But this is the gospel here that we just read. This is what Paul is using. This is what he's explaining. He's explaining the gospel, which he has been preaching throughout his entire letter. And this becomes fuel for his doxology, church. This is why he breaks into praise. The fullness or the clarity of this message of the gospel was kind of kept under wraps throughout the Old Testament. You see, they didn't have a clear picture of what the gospel was. They, they, they only got mysterious bits and fragments, kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. You see, the prophets who wrote of this mystery in the Old Testament didn't always fully grasp the how or the when or even exactly the fullness of who the gospel was and is. They didn't fully grasp that. But the prophets, 
Nonetheless, the prophets, the writers, all the figures of the Old Testament, every word of the Old Testament, certainly and at times unknowingly, declared the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they did. And so, that is why in chapter 4, Paul is talking about Abraham and David. That's why he's bringing them back up. Because it wasn't a clear picture for them, even though every word they spoke and every work, every, everything they did, every word that they wrote, it testified to this gospel. That is why Paul says in our passage, he says this, according to the revelation of the mystery, this is 1625, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. He's saying that now we have all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. And he spends all of his time in Romans putting the pieces together so that the piece, the jigsaw puzzle is now complete. And what do we see very clearly? We see Jesus. That's who we see. When all the pieces are put together in the jigsaw puzzle, he takes a look back and goes, oh, I get it. It's Jesus. Every word of the Old Testament was talking about this. This good news, this gospel, this, the righteousness that Jesus has. It's been revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed in Jesus. And amazingly, amazingly, this message, this gospel, it isn't just for the Jews, but it extends to all nations, to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. They are now counted among the people of God through God's sovereign and gracious election. Romans chapter 9. This is according to the command of the eternal God for the purpose of bringing about the obediences of faith. As we just read, this is what God has commanded to happen. This is what God's plan was all along. Jesus is not plan B, folks. He's plan A. God only had one plan of redemption, not two. And God's plan was that because and through Jesus was for us to be counted righteous before God by faith. And Paul continues as his doxology reaches its climax in, in uh, verse 27, chapter 16, verse 27. He says, to the only wise God be glory forevermore. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. It is interesting to me that Paul in another letter says that what he preaches is foolishness according to the wisdom of man. And he, he, he uses what seems to be such a foolish message as our hope. By the way, if I'm honest with you, I find myself thinking that God's wise plan for salvation is pretty foolish. I find myself thinking that sometimes. Especially after I commit sin. That's when I feel it the most. Because when I feel the guilt, the shame, and the weight of my unworthiness before a holy God... I have a tendency to start feeling like 
I need to do something now in order to improve myself, in order to make myself right before God. Oh, oh, I know, I know, I know, I know what I can do. All right, to make myself feel better about this and feel more righteous before God, I'm going to add another hour to my Bible study. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to commit to reading more of the Bible, and then, and then I'll start feeling more cleansed and holy. Or I'll only listen to Caleb. I just threw up in my mouth a little bit, sorry. Um, I'll stop drinking coffee for a week. Who am I kidding? I never said anything like that. We start to feel like there's something that we need to do. And through this passage, I realized as I was preparing that my way of thinking that I just described when I sin, that way of thinking is blasphemous before God. It's blasphemous. No, I'm serious. I use a very serious word there because it is true. Because what I'm doing when I do that, when I start feeling like, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? I need to do this. I need to do this, right? Oh, and then, I, then I'm going to start feeling more holy. Because what's happening is when I start thinking that way, I completely undermine the power of Christ in the gospel, which is given to us in God's infinite wisdom. And in doing so, I then try to elevate my own efforts as though I am wiser than God. Do you see why I use the word blasphemous? When I start feeling like I need to work for this, I'm elevating my own foolishness and calling it wisdom. And I'm placing that above God as though I am wiser than God. Because Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians in, in Ephesians chapter 2, and he says this in verses 8 and 9, he says, For by grace, church, by grace, Aaron, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. I don't know what it is, but for some reason, I think you'll feel this. We really struggle to receive unmerited gifts, don't we? If someone just handed you something that was really valuable and you know you didn't earn it, you would have a difficult time receiving it. And I have before myself. I think, I think we know at our core that, that just receiving that, it just feels unfair because we are used to working for it, right? We're used to showing up, rolling up our sleeves, pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps. I don't know what that means, but my boots don't have straps. But it's used often, okay? Get yourself together, show up, earn your wages, and get paid. That's what we're used to. About 10 years ago, um, there was a family who was a part of Deer Creek here. And, 
and they saw that Jackie and I, this was 10 years ago, so, so uh, we, we were here 10 years ago um, in 2010, um, so that was more than 10 years ago now, but um, uh, it was a little bit into us being here. We, um, I was on staff here as the worship director, and we moved to Colorado Springs. There's the little, um, and we came back in 2017. There's, there's it in a nutshell, so in case you're confused, like, hmm. Um, but it, back in 2011, somewhere in there, uh, there was a family here at Deer Creek Church who were great friends of Jackie and I. They saw that we needed a car, a second car, because they saw the struggle that we were having, right? That, that, that we, were, we were, oh, you got to go this way, you got to go this way, you got to go to work, you got to take this, and, you know. They, they witnessed that, and so they said, we want to give you our car. I had a really hard time with that. I had a hard time receiving that. So when they called me in, uh, to, uh, we went to coffee, and, and the conversation, uh, we sat down, the conversation, which lasted about an hour, didn't need to last an hour, but it lasted about an hour, it went something like this. Aaron, we want to give you our car. And I said, no way. There must be something I can do to earn it. Like, like just let me give you some money, right? And No, no, no. Your money's no good here. And again, that, that, because that was the back and forth for, for about an hour, the conversation really should have only been three minutes. Hey, we want to give you your car. Here's the keys. Thank you. That, well, thank you. Awesome. Blessed. No, I wanted to argue with them. You don't understand, my friend. I did not earn this. He's like, no, I know that. I know that, Aaron. I know. Hello. All I want you to do, he's telling me, is just be blessed. And truly, that's all he wanted us to do. He wanted us to just take the keys and be blessed. You see, the conversation... Again, that's why I was stretched out to an hour. It's because I kept objecting over and over again. And you would too. You'd have a hard time taking the keys to a 1961 Ferrari, <laughs> 250 GT, California Spider, Ferris Bueller, anyone? You'd have a hard time receiving a $10 million car too. No, it wasn't really a Ferrari. Um, wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> Might as well have been, though. I was elated. Of course I had a, t a hard time receiving this. I didn't work for it. I felt like it wasn't fair for me to just receive it. All he wanted to do, my friend, all he wanted to do was for me to receive it and be blessed. And so during the last year and a half, while Daniel was preaching through this book, which seemed at least to me to uncover a lot of controversial topics. Can you remember some of those? Just look back a year and a half. The book of Romans seems like it's chock full of controversial doctrines. These doctrines being concerning the gospel. I, at my core, found myself sitting here, sitting out here, objecting to how unfair all these doctrines seem to be. The doctrine that God's wrath is revealed toward us, Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32. The, 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 the doctrine that we can't earn our salvation no matter how hard we try. Because as Paul quotes in Romans chapter 3, 10, no one is righteous, no, not one. That doesn't seem fair. I'm sitting here going, not fair. You don't know me. You haven't met me. Because I, I like to at least think that I'm more righteous than you all. <laughs> the doctrine that we were predestined by God for salvation, Romans chapter 9. The doctrine telling us how to treat and how to respond to the ruling authorities over us, 
regardless of how they're treating us. You remember that in Romans chapter 13? I said, that's not fair. You don't understand. They are impeding on my civil rights laid out for me in the American Constitution. That's not fair. I have civic freedoms. Paul, the, dro- the doctrine of how I am, I am supposed to treat my weaker brother. That's not fair. Grow up, why don't you? That's not fair to me. Those were my objections. But here we have the final words after I just objected so many times, and I know some of you have too, with unfair. And Paul reminds us of how truly unfair all this is, but he spins it around. Because he has showed us that, yes, indeed, it is unfair. These doctrines are unfair. And he says, I'll tell you why. Because Paul says it's unfair that it saves a wretch like me. Paul says that he is the chief of sinners. And what is equally unfair is that it saved me. It is unfair that he saved you, Christian. You didn't earn it. You can't do anything to keep it. All there is left to do is join in with the Apostle Paul and break into doxology, especially now that we are fueled with the proper doctrine because doctrine, the doctrine that Jesus alone saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, is the fuel for Paul's doxology. So what does Paul want us to do? Let's go back to our question that I asked in the intro. What do you want me to do? Nothing. Nothing. Through Jesus Christ, the gospel says it is already done. And so now all there is left to do is for us to lift up our voices in thanksgiving and take that doctrine that we have learned and now use it for fuel for doxology. And church, that's exactly what we're going to do right now. We're going to respond by singing the doxology. Because a lot of you guys are familiar with that. And so what I want us to do is that I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the band to come on up. Because I'm going to need a key. I need the key of G. (laughs) But what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. And then we're going to stand together. And we're going to sing. And then we're going to respond. And we're going to continue to respond in song together. So our God, we give you praise because of your infinite wisdom. You took what we see as foolish and you made it into a declaration that saves us. And that declaration being that we stand righteous before a holy God only by the righteousness of Jesus. And so we say thank you for the faith that you give us as a gift. 
we place that faith in Jesus Christ, your son. Please drive these doctrines deep into our hearts so that we would be fueled for our doxology. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. So church, let's stand as we respond. Sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here and below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son.